Chasing Lights What is it like to fly? Now, people fly in Alaska a lot more than they do in other places. They have to. In most of the state, it's the only practical way to get there. There are 84 passenger airports for a state of only 730,000 people. Four of those are international. Now, most of the airports are for small planes like Lake Hood in Anchorage, where all the planes line up and take off on the water instead of on pavement. The main destinations, like Anchorage, Fairbanks, Juneau, and Sitka, can be reached by the large jet planes seen in big city airports anywhere else in the world. Now, those jet planes are flown in challenging environments with extreme temperatures, mountains, and even volcanic ash, which can stop a jet engine in midair. Thankfully, many Alaskan bush pilots graduated to flying jets, but they still flew as if they were still in a small plane looking for landing space on an empty highway or glacier. I once was part of a high school group that competed in statewide competitions in Fairbanks in February, and despite its friendly-sounding name, Fairbanks is a bitter place in the winter. It's 358 miles almost due north of Anchorage, It's generally 25 degrees colder. It's also much darker. The entire time we were there, we didn't see light at all. And after a couple of days and losing the competition, we were grateful to be buckled into our seats on the plane, ready to fly home. Outside, it was well below zero, and wisps of snow were blowing across the runway. We all acted as if it was no big deal. But the weather outside would have been a blizzard if it was snowing, but it was far too cold for there to be any snow. The plane made its way to the runway, turned into position, then the engines amped up to a scream and we started to rumble down the runway. Now with the engines that loud, I expected to be thrown back in my seat from the acceleration, but it was more of a gentle nudge and there was no takeoff. Instead, the plane slowed down as it approached the end of the runway, then turned around. The pilot, in a slow drawl, pilots even in Alaska always sound vaguely Texan, spoke over the intercom. Well, with the cold and all, we'll have a little trouble getting up to flat speed. So we're just going to turn around here and try it again, if that's all right with you all. And that's what we did. After the plane finished turning around, the engines were revved up a couple of times like a drag racing funny car getting ready to speed away when the light turns green. At some point when the engines were once again screaming at their highest level, the pilot released the brakes. We jolted forward as everyone was thrown back in their seats. It should have been thrilling. It's the sort of thing I imagined often with my brother. This is what a test pilot experiences, an astronaut or a race car driver. This was cinematic adventure with snow blowing across the strip and all the windows frosted. This is the point in a movie where the music is at a climax and the square-jawed hero is staring resolutely ahead as he holds the steering wheel. That's what it should have been like. 
And instead, I, along with all the other passengers, clenched every muscle in our bodies and held our breath. Everyone prayed, I'm certain, even those without religious affiliations. And at that last possible minute, the plane lifted off the ground and began the flight home to Anchorage. And that's when we were able to breathe again. The airport in Juneau is far worse. The state capital has only two ways to get there, by plane or boat, and most people fly in. The city itself must be the slimmest and longest town in the world, with steep snow-capped mountains plunging directly to the water's edge. Intense winds blow through the valleys and over a glacier that's within the city limits. There isn't enough room, really, for a 737 jet plane to land, but thanks to bush pilot skills, they do. To land or take off, the plane has to aim straight for a snow-covered mountain peak and at the last minute make a sharp turn that a stunt plane could easily execute. A passenger jet, a little more difficult, and the passengers are more likely to lose their cool as an icy grave doesn't seem unrealistic at that point. At the same time, the winds are intense and unpredictable, making a smooth landing unlikely. In the 1990s, a plane was literally flipped over on the runway. State politicians have a challenging commute to the capital for legislating. The first flight I took by myself was to an arts camp in Sitka in southeast Alaska. And like Juneau, there isn't much landmass between the mountains and the ocean. But wisely, they built their airport on a separate island where there's more room. When I got on the plane by myself in Anchorage, I was thrilled to find I had an entire row alone with a wall in front. I put my feet up whenever the flight attendant wasn't looking. And when I gazed out the window, I saw something 19th century German artist Caspar David Friedrich could have painted. It looked a bit like his wanderer above the sea of fog, only instead of fog, it was clouds and snow blowing over the peaks hundreds of miles of the ultimate opera set laid out below the plane. Two hours later, a flight attendant told us over the intercom to fasten our seatbelts and put out our cigarettes. Now, I don't smoke, nor did I smoke then, but I thought it an interesting historical detail. People, believe it or not, once thought nothing of smoking on an airplane. I guess change happens for the better sometimes. We descended below the clouds and then the plane banked sharply. At this point, I was grateful to be wearing the seatbelt because the turbulence could have thrown me right out of my seat. And finally, we dropped quickly to a height that seemed no greater than 20 feet. Right below us was ocean. All I could see in every direction was ocean. Thoughts raced. Does this mean we are making a forced water landing? Should I get out the life vest from under my seat? Are we supposed to inflate it before or after jumping out of the plane. The plane went lower, probably 10 feet above the water. But as far as I could tell, I was the only one panicking. The attendants were chatting quietly in front, and I, I couldn't hear any screaming coming from the rows behind me. And then we landed on solid ground. And then I breathed again. Air travel as an adult doesn't bother me that much. You know, for work, I travel more than 100,000 miles every year. I received my dose of air travel terror early in life. It, I guess it inoculated me from most 
of the fear. When people tell me about their fear of the dangers and risks of flying, I can't disagree with their concerns, but it just doesn't rise to the level of flying straight at a mountain or hot riding a jet plane just to take off. Instead, I usually go to sleep as soon as the plane takes off, and this, of course, annoys people. Now, once on the ground in Sitka, I was greeted by a friend of my father's along with his entire family. The airport was small, a single room the size of my high school cafeteria. There was no need for directional signs or assigned meeting places. I just walked off the plane and there they were, so welcoming and happy to see me. We all climbed into their car and drove the five minutes to their home. It was raining, but no one seemed to notice, nor did anyone have an umbrella or a raincoat. Sitka is a very small town of about 8,000 people. Commercial fishing, tourism, and oil are the primary industries. Quiet, small, and wet. It was one of the three main stops for cruise ships as they traveled the southeastern part of the state. My camp took place on a college campus of the University of Alaska Southeast. My host's home was on a bluff overlooking a quiet bay below. It was shockingly beautiful. Every day, my dad's friend or his wife would drive me to the college on the way to work. The campus was populated by weeping willows, burbling streams, and well-groomed paths into a pine forest. Here and there were small buildings with classrooms inside. I've never seen such lush greenery. It looked to me like an illustration of a prehistoric forest. The classes I attended were mostly about acting. It was incredible to spend the entire day working on things I enjoyed doing, a different experience from regular school. I don't think I learned any deep secrets about how to be a better actor, but there was a lot of practice, some good ideas, and a performance at the end of the two-week program. No one wore raincoats, even though it rained every day. Finally, I asked my host about it, and he told me, when I first moved here, I wore a raincoat and carried an umbrella, but I still got wet. Eventually, I stopped wearing the raincoat, and I think I lost the umbrella somewhere. Now I get wet without carrying the extra stuff. And towards the end of the first week, he said, this weekend, we are going out for an overnight fishing trip. I imagined that we would have to hike up to a stream somewhere and was worried that I didn't have the gear or the clothes to fish. Don't worry, he said. We have everything we need on the boat. The difference between his boat and our open craft on Lake Tyone was so great that I think they should not be described with the same language. My host's boat was a floating mobile home, a big one. There were separate bedrooms, a bathroom, a kitchen, a flying bridge above it all for steering the ship. Perhaps it should be called a yacht, a small yacht, though. It was Nowhere near as large or lavish as the yachts favored by oligarchs, but it was nice nonetheless. We set out quickly and easily and made our way through the winding coastline, islands, and bays near Sitka. In comfort, we were able to view the mountains surging up from the sea, the sea otters playing in the water, and the clouds all dropping rain somewhere in sight, even when it wasn't on us. We slowed down as we approached one bay. The water was glassy and calm, and the extended summer sun had turned everything blue. It was a long and slow approach to our destination in the bay, and as we moved along, I could see fish 
jumping clear of the surface as they leapt for insects above the water. When we entered the cove, sunlight was dimmed a bit by the mountains, and suddenly colored lights appeared in the water all around us. Jellyfish glowed just under the water's surface. The shore was mossy and lush with trees and ferns, and a waterfall fell from the mountain above to the ocean below. This is what it looks like when it constantly rains. I've never seen anything as beautiful as that cove, so much so that I sometimes think I dreamt it. If I had suddenly seen elves and fairies dancing at the water's edge, I doubt that I would have been surprised. We caught salmon, had a late dinner, and slept deeply on board as light drizzle fell from the sky. After breakfast and a little more fishing, we went back home. There was a dance at the arts camp that night and my host wanted to make sure I was there. And at the time, I'm afraid I may have taken it for granted, but now I can see just how thoughtful he was to do that, especially considering what an amazing dance it was. Why amazing? Well, for one, it's the first time I ever heard Led Zeppelin. The dance disc jockey didn't have a very big record collection to choose from, so he played Stairway to Heaven twice, so everyone would have a chance to slow dance together. And when I got back to Anchorage, I described this amazing song to a friend of mine. The lyrics, they're so profound. The, the music, it reminds me of something medieval. It's so cool. And my friend was not impressed since the song was released nine years before. And why on earth had I not heard of Zeppelin? Decades later, my wife helped me understand and appreciate the full genius of that English band with songs like Cashmere, All My Love, and The Immigrant Song. They got better for me with age. For two, I slow danced with a beautiful girl through all eight minutes of Stairway. We rocked back and forth with our arms around each other while one of the art teachers performed a little light show with colored oil in a glass plate on an overhead projector. My dance partner held me close as the song progressed until our bodies touched. And when the last song played and the dance was over, everyone walked back to their dorm rooms. I had to wait to be picked up. And my dancing partner held my hand and walked with me before we stopped next to a weeping willow on the side of the gravel road. Our talking stopped. She asked, are you going to kiss me? The drizzle started up again and water was seeping into my shoe from the puddle I stood in. Yes, uh, of course, I said, trying not to tremble. I leaned forward to kiss her on the mouth the same way someone kisses a parent or a baby on the top of her head because those were the only kinds of kisses I knew. She laughed. No, that's not the way you kiss. She pulled me into her and said, Open your mouth. Without understanding, I opened as she put her mouth to mine and explored with her tongue until we both needed to stop for breath. We kissed to the sound of a stream nearby until it was replaced with the sound of car tires on wet gravel. And reluctant, we said goodnight. And I got into the back of the car.
a stairway to heaven? Maybe. Maybe so. She lived in Juneau, impossibly far for us to be girlfriend and boyfriend when the camp was over, so we didn't talk about it. There were a couple more kisses, but a week later it was over, so many people have shared stories with me of disappointing first kisses. And somehow I was blessed with a transcendent one. Of course, it didn't predict anything good or bad in my romantic future or demonstrate in some way that I was deserving of such a gift. The romantic first kiss just happened, independent of me, like the Northern Lights. It delighted and transcended, but it really wasn't about me. A year or two later, I became friends with a smart, funny, and rebellious girl in my class. We talked endlessly about movies and music and made fun of most of it. An odd part of adolescence is the ability to see clearly through things, even though there is little direct experience with any of it. Perhaps that's why we listen to adolescent singer-songwriters throughout our lives. Somehow, just like most people that age, they put their finger precisely on what things mean. I'm a big fan of experience and wisdom. I have to be because I'm old now. But whenever I have not listened carefully enough to the insight of a young person, I have ended up regretting it. We talked all the time. But I didn't have any romantic feelings towards her. Love to me was wrapped up in a sort of Fred Astaire movie, idealized romance with strong feelings and devotion to the woman of one's dreams, whatever that is. But at one point, she turned to me and said, we should have sex together. We had talked about how both of us did not have any experience in that area. In a lot of ways, our friendship allowed me to be more honest about my feelings than I was even with myself. Sex was something that I couldn't figure out how to be honest about. I wanted it a lot, and I spent entirely too much time thinking about it, but I pretended to myself and everyone else that I didn't. With her... I admitted that I did. So we both wanted to have sex. And we both weren't interested in being romantic. The practical solution was to do it. And so one afternoon with the Beatles Revolver album on the record player, we did. It was awkward and uncomfortable. But determined to go through with it, we did. Shame, guilt, and regret kicked in quickly for me. Thoughts swirled in my head. I'm too young. I don't love her. I'm a romantic nerd. I don't do things like that. I'm too obsessed with sex. I'm a pervert. I thought that somehow everyone knew and that they were judging me. When my fellow nerd friends talked about first kisses or accidentally brushing against a girl's body during a dance, I was left speechless. I had I had gone all the way and was so ashamed of it that I didn't say a word to anyone. It was hardly the euphoria I had been led to believe accompanied losing one's virginity. 
Of course, sex comes with shame for a lot of people. It didn't for my friend, which I think was pretty great for her, and that's probably the way it should be. I was brought up in a non-religious household, but just like kids I knew in religious families, I was convinced that someone was always watching, always judging, and always able to see how I was falling short. Punishment couldn't be far behind. And after we were done, my friend told me, I was your first. Now you will always remember me. She was right. And as the shame diminishes in my life, what remains is gratitude for her kindness and rebelliousness. Her attentions to me were unexpected, unasked for, and ultimately welcome. My last flight alone before leaving home was to Chicago. I attended another arts program my junior summer at Northwestern University. My parents were once again willing to pay the costs, which overwhelmed me, but I didn't realize then how this program could help prepare me to get into college. I remember watching my own daughter question the cost of a summer program and knowing that, like my parents, I knew it was worth every penny. It was a long way away, 4,000 miles and four time zones. It meant an overnight flight, which was called a red-eye. At that time, it was possible for families and friends to accompany a traveler right to the plane. It was late at night, and everyone was tired. I remember looking back at them as I stepped past the gate attendant, and for the first time, I felt real loss. This was a rehearsal for leave-taking to come. I knew that, even then. And through the night, I held loss and excitement in equal measure. And while other passengers tried to sleep, I drank cups of black tea and tried to finish the advanced reading for one of the courses I was about to take. I didn't finish the books, nor did I sleep. Wired and tired in the bright morning sunlight, I somehow managed to get through O'Hare alone and find an airport shuttle to take me to campus. One of the earliest students to arrive, I was shown to a dorm room where I lay down and slept all day. And when I woke, it was past dinner time, and I was late for the welcome gathering. Then I was late for the first class the next morning, then late for another all-hands meeting. And for the rest of the camp, I was known as the late guy not an identity I would have chosen. And ever since, I have avoided all caffeine when I fly. There are some people who can sleep deeply right after a pot of coffee, but I'm not one of them. Now, when people go to Alaska for the first time, they are filled with wonder, excitement, and fear. When I went to Chicago, I had the same experience. Sunset was so early. The heat was unimaginable. There were so many people on the street, and those streets went on forever. I couldn't see an end to Chicago. Waiting for class one morning, I sat on a fourth-story fire escape and looked downtown where all the offices and apartments crowded the edge of the lake. The horizon was hazy with humidity and smog to the point that I couldn't see where the lake ended. 
and the sky began. It frightened me. I always knew that I would leave Alaska. Somehow, my path led neither to the bush nor Anchorage, but to other cities elsewhere, no matter how scary they were. I couldn't get enough of the sights and sounds of Chicago. When we went downtown, I would stumble down the sidewalks with my eyes looking up and taking in the impossibly tall buildings all around me. One of my teachers told me that she was actively worried for my safety and had to guide me away from traffic. And 40 years later, I still walk around looking up at buildings. A unique roof line, an interesting sculptural detail, striking cornices, or even just the profound ugliness of a particular building are all worth noticing. If that teacher saw me walk down the street today, she might still be concerned. It was a wonderful five weeks. It felt like the entire world opening up to me. I played the part of the ragpicker in The Madwoman of Chaillot by the French poet Jean Giraudoux. In the play, a group of executives want to dig up a neighborhood in Paris to extract oil. And ultimately, the community rises up and stops them. During a monologue that I spoke during the play, something happened. Instead of thinking about the audience, about my lines, or what I should be doing on stage, I suddenly thought about nothing. It was a moment where everyone in the theater seemed to be connected to everyone else. It felt like a crystal was ringing. The words came out of my mouth of their own accord and my voice seemed to resonate from everywhere. Everyone for a moment was in that moment with no distracted thought, no facades, just the moment. And then I noticed the moment, causing it to end. Now, I've been blessed with a few moments like that since, but they are not common. I fell in love with a fellow student who was so sophisticated, talented, and beautiful. Hard to believe, but she returned my attentions. And I didn't intend it, but apparently for me, arts camp is where I find adolescent love. <laughs> it's, it was hard to say goodbye. She drove me to the airport when the camp was over, walked me to the terminal. When I got on the plane, all I wanted to do was cry. And I was losing more than a summer camp girlfriend. The entire family greeted me at the Anchorage International Airport, eager to hear all the stories of Chicago. We quickly went up to Lake Tyone. It was beautiful, as always. It was quiet. The air was fresh. All the horizons were sharp and beautiful. A bird hopped up to me as I stood on the shore and turned its head to look at me. The Athabascan village across the bay was as empty as always and still melting into the ground. I ached. I missed the heat and the humidity. I missed the noise. I missed all the people living their lives together within walking distance. I missed my girlfriend. But it didn't make sense. I loved Alaska. Why was I thinking so much about Chicago? It didn't matter 
what direction I flew. There was always loss 